We're the alternate, the alternative news media, the alternative idea media. We have ideas that are not mainstream. If they were mainstream, nobody would need to turn to us to get them. And those ideas now are being squashed. They're being put out of business, uh, like that uh, parlor thing uh, mm -hmm. just last week. They're being put out of business by a, a bunch of gatekeepers who now have the power to do that. My guest today is Bill Bonner, who is founder and chairman of Agora Publishing. After graduating Georgetown University as a lawyer, Bill tried to enter the publishing business as a way to make extra money. He first tried a humor newspaper, The Public Spectacle, and then a magazine, The Frontiers of Science. Both didn't have much success. He then realized that the cost of entry into mainstream publishing was way beyond his means. So, he turned to newsletters. In 1979, he started Agora Publishing with his first newsletter, International Living. At that time, the newsletter business was a cottage industry offering stock market advice and alternative views to relatively few people. A big break for the industry came in the late 90s with the internet. Suddenly, the costs, postage, paper, printing plummeted while the potential market soared. Today, Agora is the largest independent research network on the planet and has more paid subscribers worldwide than the New York Times and the Washington Post combined. Agora publications are published in 10 different countries, in six different languages, and they generate close to $1 billion a year in revenue. Bill's e-letter, which he writes each day, is read by over 500,000 readers around the world. I recently sat down with Bill to talk about the attack by the government and tech companies on free speech and the important role newsletters play. Okay, Bill, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to appear on the show. It is really an honor and pleasure to hear, to actually sit down and talk with you. Well, it's a pleasure being here. Thanks, man. Uh, so my first question to you is, you were trained as a lawyer. You graduate Georgetown uh, as ready to go into the legal world. And then how the heck do you get into newsletters? Uh, well, it was a long, when I got into law school, it took me about a year to realize that I didn't want to be a lawyer, but I'd already kind of signed up. So I continued for another two years and got, got through the course, but I, I knew I didn't want to do that. And meanwhile, I had been working for a public interest group in Washington, raising money and we raised money by mail and the mailing lists that we went to were often these newsletter lists. And so I got curious about newsletters and uh, started reading them and found them found that industry very interesting although it wasn't much of an industry back then it was just a few guys with newsletters so what did but anyway that's how it got started what intrigued you about this industry it, it's alternative it's it's really the alternative press and the newsletter industry can traditionally and has traditionally been able to say things that the mainstream press couldn't say i mean we were writing to typically a, a different audience and they are typically people who turn to the newsletter world to get views that they don't get on the, uh, you know, in the in the Washington Post or the New York Times. Now that's all changed a lot with the internet because there are all kinds of flaky views you can get on the internet. But the newsletter business is still a business of fundamentally alternative views. Okay, so you graduate college, you realize I don't want to be a lawyer, you spend a year doing other things, and what do you do? You start on your kitchen table and say, I'm going to write a newsletter? 
Well, no, it wasn't that easy. I, I started uh, first. I had a friend who wanted to do a satire newspaper, and this was great fun. We we did a satire newspaper for about three months, and then we went totally broke. <laughs> we were selling a satire newspaper in Washington D.C., but in Washington, people take themselves very seriously. Nobody wanted to to be satirized at a local newspaper. So we found that 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 just didn't work at all. At least we didn't have the means to make it work. And then we tried a magazine. And the idea of the magazine was to talk about things that, again, it was the alternative press, talk about things that people didn't know about. It was like, we called it Frontiers of Science. And the idea was to push out to things that sounded kind of quirky and strange and find out if they were true or not. And that lasted for maybe about five years, but we lost money every year. <laughs> Eventually, I gave up. So, so you, you mess up. It doesn't work out with the satire magazine. It doesn't work out with this Frontiers magazine. How do you, what's your next step here? Well, it was because I had gotten into the newsletter world that I saw that newsletter publishing required a whole lot less capital. And, and you could just start up. You didn't you didn't need a big magazine. You didn't need uh, editors. You didn't need all those things. You know, you didn't need picture editors. You didn't need all that stuff. So the newsletter business was perfect for somebody who didn't have any money. And so I, I got into it writing a newsletter about something I thought was kind of interesting. And then I saw that they, there was a business to be done there on a much bigger scale than had been done before. So what'd you do? You took out your typewriter and you start typing away a newsletter about what, what was it about? International living? International living was the first one. And, and then it was soon after that, that I was reading, remember I was reading all these newsletters from financial guys and the financial guys who are all dead now, but uh, then they, they would claim track records, which I, I wondered whether they were true or not. So I got together with Mark Holbert and Mark Holbert and, and I started the Holbert Financial Digest to track the performance of newsletters and tell people what, how they actually did. And we discovered right away, by the way, Mark is a very nice guy and a very original kind of guy. He was a, he had studied philosophy at Oxford University, which made him perfectly prepared to do a newsletter on, on, on investing. So anyway, he, we started tracking them and we found that it was very difficult to track them because the advice was never very clear. You know, I, you know, a, a, an advisor says, I think I might take a shot at this, you know, maybe get some when the price goes down, you know, they're all kind of vague instructions and the reader could make anything he wanted out of it. So we found that very tough, but also very challenging. And we found that the newsletter industry was an interesting, more interesting than we thought. There were all these people out there with very different ideas. And there was an astrologer who, who based his, uh, his investments on astrology and he did quite well for a while. So we found that, the, that it was a world that was fascinating and uh, we were eager to get deeper into it. Okay, so you, who, who's we, by the way? Who's the other party in this? Oh, my, well, Mark Holbert, and then I had some other partners early on, and uh, it was a very small group. So you're working where? Out of your house or your basement or your kitchen table? You took an office? What'd you do? Right now, I'm at home. No, not now. Not now. Back, back in the day when you first started oh, out. Back then. Oh, back then, no. I had a little office in Washington. We did, uh, we tried all kinds of things. Remember, we, we had just... Uh, terminated the public spectacle, which was our satire newspaper. We had a little office 
And, but it was a very, was very small affair run down and there were probably mice running around in the back. But uh, it was from there that we gradually launched. And then we moved to Baltimore because, from Washington, because I saw a, an article in the newspaper about how Baltimore was giving away buildings for free to anybody who agreed to come there and set up a business. So uh, I took two of them. <laughs> I said, okay, I'll take two of these buildings. They moved to Baltimore and we've been in Baltimore ever since. And that's been, uh, well, that's been about, you know, almost 40 years. Yeah, by the way, just, just so our listeners know, Baltimore, when Bill did this bold, really courageous move, was not the Baltimore that you know today. It was a pretty terrible place. And there was, uh, I do remember, because I was working for my father at the time, selling garments, and he told me to go to Baltimore and sell, and I got off the bu bus in 1978 or 79, and it was like a war zone. It was pretty s scary place <laughs> back then. So those, those buildings you had, uh, I know, turned into great investments now, but looking back, nobody was in those buildings. No, no, Baltimore was a pretty rough place, but it still is, by the way. Yeah. It still is. It depends on what, what area you're in. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So international living, what was that about, and how did you find that marketplace? Oh, well, it, actually, it was just uh, something I thought was kind of interesting. And I imagined that other people would find it interesting, too. I didn't know that there was any marketplace because there was no there was no evidence of it. There were travel magazines, but that was a very different thing. But I was started writing about living somewhere for a while or, you know, having a second life and having a uh, uh, spending six months of the year in Portugal or something rather. I found it personally fat. Uh, very exciting. Now, <laughs> and I was eager to go do those things. Now, now, lawyers aren't known to be great creative writers. How the heck do you go from writing legal briefs to writing newsletters? And by the way, you're writing, you're the essayist of our time. Your, your writing is, we'll talk more about that in a moment, is fluid, is, 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 is really just captivating and engaging. So how do you get these skill sets to sit down and start typing away and talking to the reader in a way nobody did before. You, well, I don't know that, that that's really what happened because remember I've been at this for 40 years and my uh, first writing was probably horrible. <laughs> I don't remember <laughs> you, it. You wouldn't hire yourself back then, huh? <laughs> I probably would not. In fact, I was, I was unhirable generally. And I got partly in the newsletter business because at, a, at, a, at one moment I decided to go out and get a real job. This was not too long after I got out of college. And uh, I applied for a real job, put on a suit, went to Washington, had an interview, did everything, and I didn't get it. <laughs> and so from on the basis of that, I determined that I was kind of unemployable. So I had to figure something else out. Uh, so so you, well, you, you're, such, you're a humble man. And of course you're gonna tell me you're not. You, you, are, you are more than that. And everyone I've spoken to just tells me how humble a person you are. But you really took Agora from just an idea on a typewriter to over a, close to a billion dollars in revenue with you publish in 10 different countries and six different languages or so. Did you ever in your mind's eye think in 1979 that this is where the future was? No, I didn't. And in fact, the future wasn't there then. What happened was the internet came along and the newsletter business was a small business. It had to be small. It was expensive, it was difficult, hard to find people and so on. But when the internet came along, it was no longer 
uh, a small business. It could be a very big business. And it was just because it wasn't because of me talk about modesty. You just have to being realistic about it. It wasn't me. It was the fact the internet came along and I didn't invent the internet. <laughs> but, but you were well positioned, right? So you were positioned there. You saw the advantages of the internet because I remember back in the day uh, to solicit prospective subscribers, it was a tremendous cost in mailing out uh, letters, and then it became uh, magazines, and then bookalogs, and it was enormous, enormous amounts of money. Yes, it was, it was frightfully expensive, very difficult, and uh, and very low margin. Our margins were very low. We we were scraping by. In fact, we were scraping by for the first twenty years, maybe thirty years. Just kind of, we we're making progress. The, the important thing was that we were learning. We were learning how to write. I think that's really the really the key to it, how to do persuasive writing. Because, you know, when you do in, your, in the old days, in the paper world, you had the cost of paper, you had the cost of printing, you had the cost of postage, you had to mail, mail, mailing this. All of those things couldn't, couldn't be changed, that those were fixed costs. The only thing that you could change was words. You could change the words that you sent out. And so all of our efforts became focused on having words that meant something, words that were powerful, words that were persuasive. And we, we, I say we, our company, and not just me, but we all focused on that more than other businesses. And I think that that, that is what served us well when the internet came along, we had a lot of words <laughs> and we kept offering words. And, and now we could send out the words for nothing. We were sending, before we, we did newsletters that came out once a month on paper, you put them in the mail and they got to somebody if the post office didn't throw them away. But now we were sending out messages twice a day for free. And for people who, who write for a living, people who like words, people who like expressing themselves in words, it's a, it's a great medium. This was a revolution for us. Yeah, I remember back in 79 or 80, maybe a little bit about that time, I subscribed to an options newsletter service. And I knew of the person who was producing, he was a smart market trader. And he used to have a, uh, used to call into an answering machine, which was pretty amazing back then. And then later on, which was amazing innovation, a fax service. That's how you yeah. got the information. But I remember yeah. every day at 4.45 New York time, I would call that number just to hear his voice. And... And it just became uh, just really you just connected and you just follow that. Uh, you just yeah. kept following that. And that, that was the engagement. And I, I said, wow, what power this business has. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was remarkable back then, almost more than now, because people didn't get so much information. They didn't get have so many contacts. And when you had that contact with the newsletter guy, the guru, it was really very special. And you might remember Harry Schultz. Harry Schultz was one of the pioneers in our business. And Harry, he, he later bought a title. And so he called himself Sir mm -hmm. Harry. <laughs> it was typical of the kind of eccentrics in our business. But Sir Harry then, then developed his own language. Because remember, you're sending out pieces of paper and the words count. So he found a way to shorten the words so he could get more of them on each page. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You had to read it for a while before you could understand it. It was a totally different language that he developed. And the subscribers, his subscribers were very, very loyal because they had invested the time and effort to stick with him, to understand what he was saying, to learn his language. And so they, it was a whole different experience from typical thing that happens today. Right. We'd never have that with a magazine with Fortune or Forbes or the Wall Street Journal. Uh, you would never yeah. have that kind of uh, a connection or engagement.
and and, no. and, and that was that's that was the magic. Uh, there is I'm not going to mention the name of it. There is one newsletter I have subscribed to a market newsletter since 1984, continuously, continuously. Hmm. I knew the father who produced it and became uh, spoke to him. And then when he passed away, you felt like a, a, a member of the family passed away. That was the amazing yeah. connection that I kept seeing throughout my life of information that was totally different than what you would get in the mass media. It was not only yeah. the information, it was the engagement. Yeah, that, it was very important. I stuck with Richard Russell. You probably remember sure Richard Russell. Yep. I stuck with him for like 40 years. And, 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 he, <laughs> was, and he was bearish from, I think, 40 years ago. The whole time. Yeah. <laughs> but he was he was very good. And he you learned a lot, you know, because he would introduce you to all the ideas he had and all the theories and so on. And you felt like you were really getting somewhere. And then later on, you had this relationship with Richard. And Richard... He was in his 90s, you know, when uh, late mm -hmm. 80s, 90 yeah. to the end. And then he stopped writing about markets. He started re recalling his days in World War II as a bomber. You know, he was a bomber sighter or something. And uh, he flew these sorties over, over Germany. And he would recall what it was like and getting shot at and getting shot down. And every day he was lucky to be alive. But that was a great uh, experience. And. I really, I, I was sorry to see him go. You know, he died about five years ago. There's also another uh, James Dine, uh, Jim Dine. I think he's in his 90s, yeah. uh, well up in his yeah. 90s, uh, who, who's continually yeah. writing for maybe since 1960, which yeah, is. Yeah, colorful character, another colorful character. Yeah, yeah. He used to come to conferences with the Dinettes. <laughs> Dinettes are these attractive girls who managed his his uh, his little stand there. <laughs> yeah, well, it was, it was all about marketing. So you took yeah. you, you were able, and I think no one has done it better than you. And let me just full disclaimer: I write a newsletter for Party of the Agora family for Banyan Hill Publishing. So, uh, Bill, you are my chairman of the board. So we have that relationship. I just want to let out, let our let our okay. my listeners know that. And um, there is no one, I don't think, out there who has mastered the words and the the way to put them together like you have done over the past forty years. Your e-letter goes out today to about, what, half a million people a day? Read it? Yes, I think it's about half a million. So you write, you sit down in front of the computer now, and how do you come up with ideas? Because first of all, not even ideas are great. It's, it's totally engaging. I, I, I don't agree with half the things you say, Bill, but uh, <laughs> I really don't. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I have to read it just to see how you, where you're going with this. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you don't. You don't have a, nobody has a lot of ideas. You're lucky if you have one or two, and then you just need to, you're interpreting events for people. At least that's the way I see it. Things happen and people want to know what, what to make of it. Is it important? Is it not important? Is it, should I do something different? Should I sell? Should I buy? And so really you're just interpreting them, them these events through the lens of your own ideas. And you don't have many ideas. I, in fact, only have one. <laughs> but I, but I keep spinning everything through it and see how it turns out. You know, it's like one of those those uh, things you put wine through to put some air in. <laughs> but uh, it's really and once you get going, it's easier. By the way, because you know if, if you had to sit down and have to write a day a message, you know, like I do, like seven hundred words, it's hard. You got to think, what am I writing about? What am I going to say? But when I do it the way I do it, which is to say every day, the Tuesday follows from Monday, Wednesday follows from Tuesday. I mean, every, it's an ongoing conversation. 
And, you know, it's a, it would be a, occasionally I sit there and don't have anything to say, but it's very rare. Usually I'm just elaborating on what I said yesterday. There's the trick, folks. You got it. So you've, that was, that's really the trick that you, well, you mastered it. So my question is this, Bill. All of the, all of the topics that are out there, Agora specialized and you focused on health and wealth. Why those two? Well, uh, those are the only two that really work. It's not just health and wealth. We still do international living, which is kind of quirky. But uh, people, what's interesting, what's important to people? It's their money and their health. Really, those two areas cover just about everything of real importance. And there's a whole another newsletter business, a whole industry covering little things. I call them little, but they're not little. You know, how to get ahead in your job, how to program your computer, lots and lots of detailed newsletters and very practical. But we just don't, that's a different business. Our business is uh, selling ideas and the ideas people want to read about are the ideas that are most important to them, which are uh, their health and the health includes just practically everything, and their wealth, which also includes economics, politics, and everything involved in wealth. So there's a lot of ground in those two areas. So Agora has how many millions of subscribers? We have about 2.5. So two and a half million people. And you ask the average person about a newsletter, and they, they look at your cross-eyed. They have no idea what you're talking about. How big is this newsletter industry, the universe of, of subscribers? I don't know. I don't. We're, we're the big player in that market. Uh, when I started, I had, uh, you know, I had four or five competitors and uh, they all just gave up. <laughs> they all just or they got old, retired or something rather. And uh, now we don't have many. And I don't know how big the market is. And I'm talking worldwide. You know, we, we, we sell our stuff all over the world. And nobody else does that. So just taking the U.S., I don't know. Maybe it's uh, maybe maybe that market is a five million people. Maybe it's ten million. I don't know. But I real, I it can't be more than ten. It's it's still a very small market. So so we're now at a crossroads here. The information on the internet is ubiquitous. There is really anything you can get. Most people say, "Why the heck am I going to pay a nickel when I get all this amazing free stuff?" Why do you feel, well, let me rephrase the question. What reason are you giving that prospect or that subscriber to pay you for information in health or wealth that they could easily spend a few, an hour or two searching on the internet and possibly get it? Well, the, it, it's an entirely different thing. You can get anything on the internet, anything, but you don't want anything. The, you know, the hard thing is in, in life is separating the wheat from the chaff. You know, you can get on the internet and you can, next thing you know, you'll be, you'll be breaking into the Capitol building. I mean, there's all kinds of things out there available to you, but you don't want information. You've got too much information. What you want is somebody that you trust to go through the information and give you something that you can, you can work with. And that's what Richard Russell, that's what Richard Russell taught me because every day he would come on and he'd say, well, the Dow went up, but I don't think it's a big deal because blah, 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 blah. You know, I, that saved me a lot of time having to think about it myself because I trusted him. And so I wasn't going to worry about it. It's, it's a matter of trust and a matter of of uh, the relationship is so much more important because if you have somebody on the other end of the line that you trust, you're willing to pay them. In fact, you should pay them. 
because if you don't pay them, the deal is, is, is not right. It's not right to get something that's valuable and not pay for it. And people understand that. And they like that deal too. You know, they want to be, they want to pay. They want to pay because they want a deal with somebody where somebody agrees to do the work, to analyze, to think, to, to figure things out because they can't, you know, people are too busy. They have other lives. There are, you know, there are people who are aeronautical engineers or well drillers, or, you know, they've got families, they've got all kinds of things going on. They pay us to do the work that they would do themselves if they had the time to do it, the training, the inclination and so on. That, that is the relationship which we have with them. It's not just spewing out information because you can get any kind of information you want. We don't do that. In fact, we try to limit the amount of information because that's what people really need. They need less information and more wisdom and wisdom is what we try to provide. Right. So it's like drinking from a fire, a fire hydrant and versus uh, basically from a garden hose and you supply the garden hose of exactly what they want to get because they're in tune with the editor. Well, that's right. We try to, we try to tell them what's important. The garden hose, I mean, if you, the fire hose will, it will kill you. It's, it's too, there's too much there. Right. It'll drive you crazy. You can just try to think of all the news that you could consume. And then, cause that's a big problem t- in today's world because people have just too much stuff coming at them and they would need people. And it used to be newspaper columnists would do that. You would read the columnist of your choice and you say, oh, that's what I should think because he thinks that. But that that role has uh, changed a lot. And now they're in, in their financial lives and in their health lives, people look to our industry still to find people they trust and to look for, to, for help from them to make important decisions in their lives. So where do you see the industry going? Now that we're here, it's 40 years or so since you first started, a major milestone. You're now the biggest fish in a, very, in a pretty small pond compared to the amount of information out there and the amount of people that are out there wanting information. Where, where do you see this industry going? It's hard to know. I really don't know myself. I, I think about it all the time, but I'm puzzled by the, the channels. You know, you have all of these different ways to contact people, all the influencers and the Twitter accounts and the Snapchat and the Mm -hmm. Facebook. And those people have become gatekeepers. We didn't have this before. Before we had the post office and the post office would take anything that you put in front of them, more or less, and throw Mm -hmm. half of it away. (laughs) But the gatekeepers could just shut you down. And right now that's a big, big problem for us because the gatekeepers have decided that negative views Negative views are not going to be allowed on their channels. Negative views of the economy, for example. Uh, but negative views is what I've got. I've got a lot of negative views. When you come bring up the economy and politics and those things, those, my views are almost all negative on those. I think we're going the wrong direction. And But you can't say that now. And so it's a big problem. I don't know how, I, I don't really understand how this is going to evolve, but I assume there'll be other competitors with other ideas and other channels and other other platforms that uh, people like me can use to to talk to people who want to hear it. So what is the biggest concern that you have when you put your head on your pillow at night about this industry and where Agora is heading? Well, I, I don't have anything that specific, but what I think about is this trend to shutting out uh, alternate news. We're the alternate, 
the alternative news media, the alternative idea media. We have ideas that are not mainstream. If they were mainstream, nobody would need to turn to us to get them. And those ideas now are being squashed. They're being put out of business uh, like that uh, parlor thing uh, Mm -hmm. just last week. They're being put out of business by a, a bunch of gatekeepers who now have the power to do that. And now we're having also the government is is in on this as well. You've seen, uh, you know, in the wake of the capital invasion, people with alternative views are being labeled terrorist. <laughs> and some of it's pretty extreme. You know, even, you know, people that that in my world, in the newsletter world, you know, terrorists are the last things we are. You know, we're not. We are not going to blow anything up. We're just going to give ideas and information and call them the way we see them. But now, you know, they, this, uh, this new trend, if they don't like what you have to say, they, nobody, they don't want you to have the ability to say it. Yeah, so that, that's very different tuning out, you know, before some people would do, would just tune you out because m- most people would, in fact, we're, remember we're alternative. So the mainstream never wanted to hear what we had to say. Even when we were right, and we were all, we were frequently right about the main things that were taking place, at least in the financial marketplace, we were frequently right, but people never wanted to hear it. And now we're still frequently right, and now we can't even say it <laughs> because we get shut down by the by Facebook and so on. So how do you see what, what you what's the workaround for that? What do you, what do you? you I, I don't know. I, it's, to me, it's almost a technical issue. Somebody's going to find a way to get a a internet that works that's free that people are not going to be able to shut shut you shut you down imagine the days in the post office or the telephone everybody had telephones but the at&t never came on the line say i'm sorry you can't say that (laughs) that would be extraordinary no i i live in new york and i get the new york post and just several months ago when the uh situation with hunter biden came out uh the new york post was their account was banned on twitter yeah, a newspaper, a newspaper protected yeah. by, uh, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of the press was knocked out by a technology company. It, it, it's absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. And, I, I, you know, I couldn't I can't add much to that conversation except to say that the, the media itself has become so political that certain views, if they're in opposition to what the mainstream thinks, are just not. Going to they they're in fact people are sort of forced into these very marginal things you know there's a Q and on out there and there are kind of crazy things going on out there and if you have a, a a view that is not approved of like you want to know what Hunter Biden was really up to you almost have to go out to this uh, scurrilous side of the press where they have you know they don't care about truth they care about uh, rumors and uh, conspiracy theories and so on. So anyway, we're get, we're entering dangerous territory. And uh, since I read a lot of history, you know, it's, it's not the first time, but uh, it, it might not be very pleasant. How do you see it playing out over the next four years? Well, I what I think is going to happen is that the people are going to become much more desperate because the, the fundamental economic policy of the U.S. is 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 wrong. It, they're they're going in the wrong direction. You can't just print up money and make an economy stronger. All you can do is to change the makeup of the population so that some people are richer than other people, depending upon whom you give the money to. 
So the whole, the, the philosophy of stimulus, of control, of giving out money is wrong. And every time it's been used, it leads to a financial disaster. And so I expect the financial disaster will happen. And I expect that this will cause the government, government to be more, more desperate to hold on to control. More and more people are going to be upset because they're not going to find the work that they want or the salaries. Or they feel things are un, unfair. And they're right. They are unfair. And so I suspect the government is going to have to be tougher it's going to have to get tougher, shutting down more websites, shutting down more people's points of view, and, uh, and and trying to hold on to power that way. So that paints a pretty grim picture of where you see the <laughs> the end the, the industry going no, because it's we the, have, to, have to enjoy it while we've got it. <laughs> yeah. So so it's these alternative voices that are going to be squashed uh, really um, pretty soon. So, Bill, then end on, on one positive note so my listeners and I could tap dance back to our office because now I'm feeling pretty depressed. One, you want a positive note? I want a positive <laughs> note from you, and, and I know there's one in there. Well, the, the positive note is that what really matters in life is, is not the big picture. It's not the, what's happening in global trade or, uh, or politics. It's what's happening in your own life. And one thing that we have learned, I think all of us during these lockdowns and the COVID crisis is the importance of, of family, domestic life and the, how much time we spend at home now and you've got to get things right there first. And that if you get things right there first, then a lot of that other stuff like inflation, like deficits, like debt building up, like crazy trade wars, well, it matters, but it matters a whole lot less in an immediate way. And so that's the, the bright spot is I think we've done a lot of learning this last year and people are, uh, well, they appreciate probably more the relationships that mean something to them. And, and that's important. That's a, that's a big deal. Yeah, no, I, 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 I totally agree. I remember Barbara Bush saying something to the effect, and I might butcher it a bit. She said, it's not as important what happens in the White House, but what happens in your house. Yeah, that was a good line. Yeah, very good. Yeah, that's it. All right, Bill, I want to let you go here. So, Bill Bonner, uh, you started with a typewriter on a desk, built it up to a billion-dollar business. Now, Agora is one of the biggest. You uh, are published in, what is it, 10 countries now? 10, 10 countries, yeah. You see Six different languages. You see expanding We're published that? in Japanese. <laughs> what, what, Japanese. What, was the latest, what was the latest country that uh, Agora got into? Uh, Japan. Japan, we stayed away from for a long, long time because we just didn't know what to make of it. You know, <laughs> people are funny. We don't we don't speak the language. We don't know what's going on. But a guy came to us and said he wanted to publish our stuff in Japan. We were skeptical. He didn't speak English very well, so we had a difficult time getting together with him. But then when he started to, he found that the market in Japan was very good for our our kind of stuff. What's the next market you see going into? What country? Well, I want to go to Russia. I haven't been able to get a good contact there, but uh, I've been toying around with it for a long time. And why Russia? Because Russia is a big market, and I think the Russians will, if we get, you know, we'll, we won't go there, by the way. <laughs> we, we may not publish from Russia. That's a whole other thing. But I think that market will be open to alternative media. Wow, that's that's exciting. That's a huge, huge market. And uh, how about China? China, we've been in. We've been there for ten years. 
And uh, that's been very difficult, very difficult market for us. And we don't know why we just don't, it's just a puzzle. Some markets are easy, some are hard. We don't know why. Brazil is a great market for us. France has been a good market, but England is not, for example. And uh, we, it's hard to say why. And India, by the way, where they do speak English, been a big failure. Never, never able to make any any progress there. Really, that's so amazing. You know, these these countries which you would think would be great for uh, spreading yeah. new ideas are just not there. Yeah, it's just funny. You don't you don't know. Australia is a very good market, by the way. Yeah. All right. Great. So if anyone's listening who has contacts in Russia or could get uh, Bill Bonner's offer you a fantastic opportunity to uh, right. to get into this business. All right, Bill, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, continued success and continue doing what you're doing for many more years. Uh, you have done a tremendous service by taking newsletters and really creating an industry in terms of making a connection between editors and subscribers and giving amazing value for it. So Thank you very much, Charles. It's a pleasure. You know, we, I, I have known of you for, for years, but this is the first time we've actually gotten together. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, let's make this a habit. So this is really okay. good. Thanks so much, right, Bill. Thank Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.